Good morning. Everyone good? Everyone's right? Everyone, everyone got baptized on the way in to church today. Congratulations. Oh. Whenever people say they moved to Tennessee because we experience all four seasons, they didn't know that we experience all four of them within like two-week spans. It all happens within one very short time frame. It can be 72 on Christmas and then nine degrees a week later, and it was like 56 yesterday. Just bizarre. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's bizarre. Glad you guys are here. So we are working through a new book of the Bible. We just started this last week, a book called 1 Corinthians. And this is another letter, letter, letter written by Paul to a church in Greece, a church in South uh, Greece, in the southern part of Greece. Now, so if you've been at this church for any length of time, all we do is go through whole books of the Bible. We've been doing a lot of the works of Paul. We recently did Romans, recently did First and Second Thessalonians. Now we're working through First Corinthians, which I really, really enjoy this book of the Bible. But um, we work through these because especially the writings of Paul, I think the entire New Testament falls in this category. But Paul wrote, this is written in, in the OG, uh, OG 50s, right? 50, 54 through 56. So this was written 1970 years ago. And as we go through this today, it is remarkable how relevant these words are. It looks like it was written last week. And so Paul's writings are extremely relevant. This particular letter was written to a church in southern Greece, uh, a little bit, uh, it'd be a little bit west of Athens, where Athens is. Very booming town, very diverse town, um, very rapidly growing, and a lot of commerce, a lot of diversity, a really, really interesting pocket of southern Greece. And the reason why Paul wrote this letter, we talked about this last week, was the church in Corinth, these were people who knew who Jesus was, right? They, they knew the teachings of Jesus. They had instruction from Paul. He actually planted this church. But what was happening in Corinth is they were deviating from the word of God and the, the wisdom of God, which is the word of God, and they started leaning more on the wisdom of the world, which is culture. The problem with the church is they turned away from the word of God and they started going more the direction of the world, the wisdom of the world. So one of the, the, the main points of the book of 1 Corinthians that we talked about a little bit last week, and it'll go all the way throughout this book of the Bible, is that God calls us to a higher standard, not because we are better than anyone else, but because we have a knowledge of who Jesus is, how we are to live, what is good and evil. So we are called to a higher standard. That's what we talked about last week. Not only are we called to a higher standard, God is the one that brings us to that standard. So God has a standard by which we are to live, and the only way to achieve that standard is by God. We just have to be humble and submit to that standard. That's what we talked about just in the first half of chapter one. Now, here's what we're gonna talk about today. And man, today is exceptionally relevant. It's just, again, it's remarkable. What we're gonna talk about today is this, is that we can live in confidence and security. Now, this is a big deal in our day and age. We live in a, uh, a culture right now in the United States that is very much, uh, has a source of hubris, of bravado, arrogance, right? And I believe a lot of that arrogance, a lot of that hubris, a lot of that, that bravado stems from the fact that we were a pretty insecure people. And we're a very insecure people because we as a culture, as a nation, have deviated from the word of God and we have bought into the culture of the world. And listen, 
when we don't know who we are, when we don't know who we're made in the image of, we try to find our identity in everything because we're insecure, we're unstable. So today we're gonna to talk about confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, not security in ourselves, but that we can live in the confidence and security of God when we submit to him. When we take ourselves out of the equation and we, we submit to his ways and what God wants us to be, right? We learn who we are because we learn who God is. So we can live in confidence and security, right? Okay, everyone's good? Okay, preface, if you're new here, um, I'm gonna talk about America a lot today. Not because I hate it, not because I'm a communist or a socialist, uh, but we live in America. So it's gonna be the focus of, of our talk a little bit today because it brings up a people that have shifted away from biblical principles to culture. That's us, okay? And so I don't have an ax to grind. Um, I'm not you know, secretly from Russia or anything like that. I'm not trying to hide anything. I actually took Russian for, for four years, but um, anyways, I'm just giving you a preface today. I have no ax to grind, but we would be fools to keep our heads in the sand and not identify the fact that we as a people are moving in a very dangerous direction, okay? All right, so that being said, you're already looking through your notes to see what I'm gonna say that's gonna hurt your feelings. Don't do that, just wait. We should receive notes handouts when you walked in. Everything will be on the screens. If you have the Experience Community app, everything will be on there. Click on sermon notes, you get all the scripture and uh, all the notes are right there, okay? If you have a Bible, we're right after the book of Romans. We're in 1 Corinthians. We're only gonna do half of chapter one, and we'll get through it relatively quick uh, today, okay? All right, glad you guys are here. Let me pray, all right? Father, Lord, we love you. <sighs> Father, Lord, we, we are very appreciative of the liberties and freedoms that we currently have, God. We, we're, we're appreciative, Lord, that we can come into this room, that we can worship you freely, that we can break open the word of God and study about you, and Lord, I pray that, that today through our study, Lord, I pray that you bless our church. I pray that you don't only bless our church, God, bless every church in our city that is studying your word today. Bless our other campuses and the churches in those cities. God, bless the churches we work with in New England and in El Salvador and in Uganda, Lord. God, we just pray that, that you are honored by our study today, that you are blessed, God, that you are proud of what we do today, God. And we pray that we can grow closer to you through this time. Lord, we love you. We thank you, we praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting in verse 18 of chapter one. I'm gonna read a little bit, and then we'll go back and uh, we'll, we'll dissect it, okay? For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolish, foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness 
is stronger than human strength. A little sarcasm peppered in there at the end. So the first half of chapter one, Paul tells us that human wisdom detracts from the effect of the cross or the power of the cross. What that simply means is this, that we as Christians, if you're a Christian in here, that we are to teach people the gospel of Jesus, the word of God, we are to deflect all of our attention to God, make Jesus the focus, and remove ourselves from the equation as much as possible. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't tell our testimony. I would say that's actually probably the first thing that we should share, what God has done for us, right, to build that relationship. The book of Revelation says, I think it's chapter 12, that says that it is by your testimony and the blood of the lamb that we overcome the devil. So our testimony and what God has done for us is extremely important. But we have to let the word of God speak for itself. Now, the advice I give you for that is, if someone comes up to you, a friend or a coworker, and they say, hey, I'll use me, hey, Corey, what is your opinion about this issue? My first answer is, my opinion doesn't matter. My opinion will not save your soul. My opinion will not change the world. Let me show you the opinion of God on that subject. Let God do the talking, not me. I really, really hate when Christians go, well, I think this. It doesn't matter what you think. You have to go to the word of God, right? The Quran calls Christians the people of the book. And they mean that offensively, but I, I kind of like that title, right? We are people of this book and that we are to follow this book. And I need to not insert my wisdom in this because it's foolishness. I'll just let God do all the talking through his word. That's what we need to do. So Paul perceived that the divisions that were happening in Corinth, the root of the church being divided in Corinth was pride. I don't know if there's any C.S. Lewis people in here. I like C.S. Lewis a lot. He was, he was a absolutely brilliant man. Mere Christianity, one of my favorite books ever written. I've read all the Chronicles of Narnia. I've read about 14 of his books. A brilliant man. One of the things C.S. Lewis said about pride was this. He said, make no mistake about it. Pride is the great sin. It is the devil's most effective and destructive tool. I agree with him on this. What happens is, when we start making it more about ourselves and less about God and the well-being of others, we're always destined for chaos. We're destined for failure. We're destined to hurt others and to hurt ourselves and to hurt our relationship with God. So pride had crept into the church. And of course, it, it, chaos ensued, division ensued. So for people who follow culture, remember that was the problem of the Corinthian church. They were following the world's ideas of what is good and bad, right and wrong, what is wise or unwise. For people that follow culture, Paul calls it the wisdom of the world, Christianity looks really, really stupid. Why? Because it is a complete contradiction to everything the world tells you. The world tells you to pursue yourself above all things, and the ultimate goal of us, especially in the United States, is the pursuit of happiness, right? We even include that in some of our declarations and documents. We live in a culture that is the pursuit of self, it is the pursuit of happiness. So here's the thing. We as Christians are to imitate a savior that gave up his throne in heaven to come to earth to live like one of us, one of his own creations, and to die on a cross for a lot of people who didn't even care. There was nothing in it for Jesus. And we as followers of Jesus are to go out and love humanity with no desire for anything for ourselves, right? To put ourselves second, just like Jesus put himself second. And that makes no sense to a culture that says, put yourself first. It's a complete contradiction. 
So that's why the gospel in Christianity looks like foolishness, as Paul says, to those who are perishing. So when we, we, when we elevate self above all else, the, the, the word of God also seems foolish. It also seems very stupid. Why would I follow a book that tells me to deny myself? And so the world sees the teachings, the principles, the parameters of this book as a constriction, restriction, constriction, shackles, right? So those of us though that give our lives to Jesus, his teaching, his principles, we don't see this as a constriction, we see it as liberation, we see it as freedom. I'm gonna talk like an adult here for a second, I'm gonna be really, really careful not to, not to say anything that's, that's, I don't know, gonna scar anyone's children in here forever, but let's talk about the topic of sex, right? So the world says, you know, love is love, so you can be with anyone you want, with as many people as you want, as long as it makes you happy, do it, right? And then we have the rise of STDs, and then we have unwanted pregnancies that result in fatherless homes, which is one of the biggest problems in our culture right now. And we have the insecurity that so many women deal with because they've been treated more as a piece of meat and a commodity than as an actual human, which births things like pornography, which is a 14 billion dollar industry just in the United States that does just ridiculous harm to men and women. And we have men who, are, who can, cannot even be physically intimate with their wives because they're so addicted to the filth that they look at on the internet. And the world says freedom, and God says, that's not free at all. You have become a slavery, right? You've you become a slave. It is slavery now, sometimes literal slavery, just on this issue of sex. Now, here's the thing about sex. God is not anti-sex. God wants you to find one man, one woman, right? They did this, this union together in marriage, and God's all about you having a lot of sex. That's what the whole book of Song of Solomon's about, right? The most uncomfortable book of the Bible to teach. I've done it twice, right? It's me read the whole time and you guys giggling the whole time. <laughs> but God is not anti-pleasure. He's not anti-intimacy. He just puts guardrails on the road because he knows if there are none, we will drive off a cliff. And God wants good things for us. He doesn't want bad things for us. That's why there are parameters. Now, those of us that read the word of God and have submitted to this, we see the freedom in that. We see the good marriages that are birthed from that. We see healthier children being raised up in society looking better. If we give over to that, right? But the world thinks it's foolish, right? One partner for life, they think that's foolish. The irony, though, of the wisdom of the world is that it isn't working. It never has worked. And so Paul quotes Isaiah, chapters 19 and chapters 33, and then he goes on, he's very, very sarcastic. That's why we really like Paul, right? He says, where are the wise people of the world? Where are the ones who have solved all the problems? He goes, they don't exist. And what he's referring to is every great empire that has ever existed has fallen because they didn't submit to God all throughout human history. This isn't just biblical history, this is history history. The Egyptians, right? The most powerful, intelligent, influential, and affluential people on planet Earth, nothing's ever going to happen to us. All we have left now is the ruins in Egypt, right? That's all we have of the Egyptian empire. After that come the Assyrians, same attitude. After that come the Persians. After that come the Greeks, right? We're the most intelligent, the most enlightened. We have our Greek philosophy. And then come the Romans who knock the Greeks off their pedestal. And if you know anything about Roman history, that ended about 1600 years ago. They're not around anymore, right? All we have are, are different artifacts of antiquity. 
about their immorality and chaos that ensued in the Roman Empire. And what Paul is saying is, every empire thinks that they're somehow going to be it, and they all fall. Here, here we go. You're a part of an empire that's doing that right now. We don't think we're ever gonna fall, right? The youngest nation on planet Earth. We're gonna last forever. Everyone else has always failed, but we're Americans. And we know better, right? We know better. So let's take this irony into our own circumstances. These are secular numbers that I, that I researched and found. In 2018, CBS reported that anxiety and depression was higher in the United States than had ever been recorded. This is pre-COVID, right? pre all the chaos that we've been dealing with for the last two and a half years. In 2018, the United States, people in the United States were, no, were, were more depressed and anxious than we had ever been. Since COVID has hit, Boston University did a study that said the numbers from 2018 have now tripled, tripled in the last couple of years. According to the Pew Research Report, violent crime is higher in the United States than we have ever had on record. At the same time, listen, look at this. The irony of this, at the same time, the world's wisdom has made us more depressed, anxious, and violent than we've ever been. Oddly enough, the decline of church is more rapid now than it has ever been in the United States. In 2019, we had never seen as much of a decline of church in the United States as we did two years ago. Now, let me tell you something. Because of COVID, pre-COVID, this church ran 6,000 people. Right now, we run about 4,500. That's a deficit of 1,500 people. Now, I know some of them have moved away. Some of them are still trying to you know, avoid being around large groups. Some of them have just flat out backslidden. They have flat out turned their back on the church, and I say God as well, a lot of them, right? And so here's the thing. I would say in the last two years, the church has declined even more rapidly than it did in 2019 when it was at its pinnacle of declining. Depression, anxiety, violence, the church. That is what is happening right now in the United States. So Jesus came as an antithesis to our wisdom, wisdom, quote unquote, right? So the cross of Christ was not only a sign of radical sacrifice, radical humility, the teachings of Jesus have always been counter-cultural. They have always gone against the grain of culture. Let's put this up against Americans culture, America's culture right now. In our self-centered culture, right, Jesus tells us in Luke 14, take the low seat. If you go to a party, this is what Jesus is talking about. If you go to a party and there's this huge banquet table and the host of the party is right there, the most popular guy in the room is sitting right there, Jesus says, don't go sit next to the host. Sit way down in the low cheap seats right over here. Take the seat of humility because the host will notice that you're humble and invite you to sit closer and you will be honored, right? Take the seat of humility, Jesus says. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. In a culture that says, do what you wanna do, right? Be happy, pursue yourself. It's all about you, Jesus says it's not. Seek first the kingdom of God and then everything will be taken care of. Jesus says in Matthew 20, the last will be first. Tell everyone on Black Friday that, right? You're stepping on people's grandmas trying to get to a TV because that's the culture we live in. Every year, people die shopping for garbage, right? That's the society we live in. And Jesus says, don't you know that the first will be last and the last will be first? Again, it's about taking the seat of humility. And then I love what it says in Matthew 16. 
Jesus says, if you wanna find your life, you first have to lose your life. What that means is this, we will always live in an insecure and, and society that is lacking in confidence because the only thing that we are made in the image of is God. And the more that we don't know who he is, the more we're not gonna know who we are. And we live in insecurity. And Jesus dealt with this. He said, if you wanna know who you are, learn who I am first. If you wanna find your life, lose your life. Completely counter-cultural, right? So it was the same way in Paul's day. In Paul's day, the Jewish people wanted a sign from Jesus to prove that he was the savior, right? So you gotta get a kick out of the Jews in the gospels, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they'd follow around Jesus, who was also Jewish, and they said, hey, uh, show us some miraculous signs to prove to us that you're the savior. So Jesus raised the dead several times, healed the sick, made the blind see, caused the deaf to hear, fed 15,000 people with a couple of fish and some loaves of bread, and still the Jews were like, eh, eh it's not enough for me, right? You ever met those people that said, if I could just see God, I would believe in God? Not true, it's not true, because it's a posture of the heart. There's never enough evidence for them to see God. If you go back into the Old Testament when the Jews were being uh, um, the exodus to the promised land, they saw a pillar of fire at night leading them. They saw a pillar of smoke during the day, food fall from heaven, water from a rock. Moses would go up on the mountain and they would see the presence of God, stone tablets with the directives of God written from God's hand. And it still wasn't enough. Right when Moses disappeared, they built a golden calf and started worshiping that. So whenever people say, well, if I could just see God, I don't think so. But that was the Jew's place. The Greeks, on the other hand, see if this sounds familiar, they were more intrigued with their vague and open-ended conversations than they were about absolute right and wrong. I'll say it one more time, one more time. In Greek culture, they were more fixated on open-ended and vague conversations than they were about what is absolutely right and wrong. Clear directives from God. Now listen, both responses to God are exceptionally arrogant. To say to God, well, I'll believe in you if you do some tricks for me, is very arrogant. And then to also say that there is absolutely no right and wrong, there is absolutely no concrete answers, it's right here. And so to say that it is all vague and it's up to what is real in my world, right, is also a very arrogant response. So here's the thing, Jesus and the cross are ridiculous and offensive to the world. Why? Here's why Jesus and the cross are offensive and ridiculous to the world. Because Jesus points out that we have lived in error. Not only has Jesus pointed out that we have lived in error, he says that you need to turn from your ways and submit to my ways in order to avoid destruction. This goes back to pride though. The audacity to think that we can create our own truth. There is only one truth. And it's not my opinion, it's not your opinion. There is only one truth. The word of God, the creator, defines what is true. And it is very audacious of us to say, well, that may be your truth, but it's not my truth, right? You may say this is a stage, but I think it is the helm of a battleship that you're standing on. And if you disagree with me, Corey, that's offensive. That's the world we live in, right? There are no absolutes, it is all relative to what I prefer. It's a very arrogant thing, it's a very prideful thing. So 
to those that will humble themselves and submit to the ways of God, God's foolishness is, is better than human wisdom. It's wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is sarcasm. There is no weakness in God, right? There is no foolishness in God. But what Paul is saying is the weakest thing you can try to imagine about God is stronger than anything humans can do. The most foolish thing that you can ever think of with God is much more wise than anything humans could ever do. What Paul's point is, is this. God is always better at directing your life than you are. So we have to humble ourselves and rely more on this word and less on our feelings. Because this word says that our feelings are deceptive. Again, Christians, I'm gonna encourage you when you talk to someone and they say, well, what do you think about this? Well, I don't feel like that's right. It doesn't matter what you feel. What does the word say about it? Because our feelings will be deceptive. Our feelings will lead us astray, okay? All right, everyone's still good? We're good, All right? Nothing has been thrown this way yet, so let's move on to the next part. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this is important. Paul needed to remind the church in Corinth where they came from. So most of the people in Corinth were, were like you and I, right? Pretty average, run-of-the-mill, middle-class citizens. That's what most of them were. Now, that's not to say that there weren't high-achieving or wealthy people. That's not to say that there weren't low-achieving and, and poorer people in the church. I'm sure it was a blend of everything. But, but like us, the vast majority of us are, are right there in the middle. So here's the thing. God wants to save everyone. That doesn't mean everyone will be saved because people will reject him. But in 2 Peter, it says it's not God's will that any perish, that any go to hell. But what God often does, we see it all throughout the Bible and we see it around us now, is God will purposefully call people who are not of any kind of big stature in the world to do amazing things. And he does that because it draws all the attention to him, not the individual, right? And so God will often use the underdog, if you will, to do remarkable things because it just shows how powerful God is in the lives of humans. So what this is, is it's a reminder for us. What happened to the Corinthians, listen, this is very important for you and I. What happened to the Corinthians, they were blessed people, they were gifted people, they were prosperous people, they had a lot of advantages. But instead of that making them humble, it made them entitled and arrogant. We live in the most free, prosperous, I would dare say blessed nation that has probably ever existed. And instead of us using all those blessings for the greater good, 
instead of us being humbled by how much God has given us, we have become some of the most entitled, immoral, disgusting people on planet Earth. Corey, you sound really, really negative about our country. I don't know what other response to have right now. Listen, we hail ourselves as the Christian nation, which I think is a fallacy. No one puts out the filth and disgusting things that America puts out. In most countries, it is illegal to do the things that we put out and put billions of dollars into. If you travel to the majority of the world, pornography is illegal in most parts of the world, right? It's a 12 billion, 12 to 14 billion dollar industry in the United States. The music we put out, the people we hail up as role models for our children, we are awful at this. We've become a circus on the world stage, right? And a moral one at that. We have taken all of the blessings that God has given us and we've just become entitled, lazy, disgusting people. So Paul wanted to remind them that all of the blessings that we have had, all the blessings that the church of Corinth had, all the blessings that we've experienced for the last three centuries in this country, it's not because we're inherently good, it's because God is good and we have subjected and submitted ourselves to him. But the moment we as a people turn away from God, this is what we get. We are seeing it in real time. So knowing that all good and perfect things come from God and not us, James 1.17, that should make us the most humble people on planet Earth. But we are the most arrogant bunch on planet Earth right now. We are the most arrogant bunch on planet Earth because we have lost our connection as a people to Christ. So we live in a culture that tells you, listen to your heart, right? Follow your heart. Every Disney movie has that one song. And I'm not anti-Disney, I like Disney movies. Uh, me and my wife and girls watched the Encanto movie the other night on Disney Plus. We even subscribed to Disney Plus, right? And so we watched that movie and there's always that one song about following your heart, listen to your heart, you know? And every single time I'm like, girls, you know, that's garbage, right? And they're like, dad, just let us enjoy the movie. You know, so that's, it's, it's every movie, right? But the world tells us, follow our hearts. Following your heart is a great way to have an affair on your spouse. <laughs> Following your heart is a great way to get into so much debt you will never get out of it. Listening to your feelings is a great way to, to get into some really destructive relationships and to hurt a lot of people. But we are told these things. We're, to, we're told to choose our own reality. It doesn't matter if it contradicts the Bible, biology, reason, and logic. It's your reality. And I have no business to tell you that you're wrong, right? And so all of this build up to the crescendo of the, uh, of the American experience. The ultimate goal is happiness. If it makes you happy to leave your husband, leave your husband if it makes you happy. If it makes you happy to buy that car that's more than you make in a year, buy that car if it makes you happy. It's all about you being happy. That's what our culture tells us. Now listen, this is gonna, you're, you're gonna be like, I don't know if I wanna be a Christian anymore. Nowhere in this book does it tell you that your goal is to be happy. Nowhere, find it for me, it's not there. Because here's the thing, if our pursuit is happiness, we are selling ourselves short. Because happiness is a moving target. It is fleeting. It is contingent on what we have or don't have. God wants something much better for you than happiness. He wants contentment and joy, which is not contingent on what you have or don't have. What contentment and joy are fruit of the Spirit that if we have God, it doesn't matter if you take everything from me, I still have peace of mind. I still have contentment. I still have joy. That's what God wants for us. So listen, 
Again, I'm not trying to just grind an ax on America today, but that's where we live. So we cannot afford to confuse this bastardized version of what the American dream has become and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are not the same thing. It's gonna be offensive. You know the Constitution and the Bible aren't the same thing either. And sometimes the Bible says things that the Constitution doesn't say. And we need to follow the Bible, right? We need to, you you don't have to clap for that. It's just, I know that offends people sometimes. But I think sometimes in America, we've we've gotten our gods confused. And they're in the wrong orders, right? So in God's wisdom, God chose a bunch of men who were not anything special in the world to write down the New Testament, which would not only tell us how to be saved, but it would give us the directives on how to live. These are all the men that authored the New Testament. Peter, Matthew, Mark, James, John, Luke, Jude, and Paul. And these men were not anything in the world's eyes. So here's the thing. Though those men were imperfect, though society deviates from the word of God and even demonizes the word of God, the teachings and principles of this book work. I'm talking about on the most practical, logical levels, they work. If we treat others the way that we wanna be treated, that works. If we will love our wives like Jesus loves us, if we will respect our husbands the way we're supposed to, that works. If we will go the extra mile for people, right? Basically everything Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. There's this really fascinating article I read just, I think it was yesterday or the day before, There was an article about Elon Musk and a CEO of a Christian corporation that they had this meeting, right? And they're talking about Tesla and him being the richest man that's ever lived and all this stuff, and they're going on and on about this. And at the end of the conversation, the Christian CEO never brought up Jesus. They were just talking about Tesla and business. And then at the end of it, out of nowhere, Elon Musk says, well, one of our big drivers of success is I've been following the commands of Jesus that are laid out in the gospel, and they seem to be working in my life. Elon Musk. And so he's not a Christian, because they asked. So the CEO of this Christian company was like, well, I didn't bring up Jesus, but you did. Can we talk about Jesus? And Elon Musk was like, yeah. He goes, I've been reading the different things that Jesus says, how to treat people, how to respond to people, how to live. I've been applying those at Tesla and in my personal life. And he goes, and they work. It's fascinating. If we will take these commands and teachings and apply them to our lives, they work. They work in our relationships. They work in our businesses. They work in our schools. They work Whatever we're doing, these principles work if we will actually do them. And so Paul makes it clear that we are in Christ because of Christ. You are saved not because you've done anything good, but because Christ has done something good for you. He says we have wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. All the definitions for those are up there. All because of Jesus. So in light of the fact that everything good in our life is not because of us, but because of Jesus, Paul says we have no right to boast in ourselves. You can brag about Jesus all day long because he's done everything. But there is no room for hubris. There is no room for bravado or pride in the life of a Christian. Well, it was my hard work that bought this house. Well, God made your arms and legs, right? So it ultimately goes back to him. Well, it was my intelligence that got this scholarship and this PhD. God made your brain, right? Everything ultimately goes back to him. So here's the thing. It is perfectly fine to be an achiever. We should strive to achieve things. There's there's nothing wrong with that. I teach my two girls, like, do the best you can. 
You know, if you want to, to hit a goal or do something, let's work hard and let's do that, right? Nothing wrong with achievement. Nothing wrong with creativity. I love creativity. This is a church that really celebrates creativity. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with leading people. I would make the argument we need more good leaders in this world. But we must remember that ultimately all of these things come from him. And that if we do not give credit to God for the success we've had in this life, God can take that away from us or we will mess it up, we will abuse it. So here's the thing though. Not only should we, we give God all the credit for what, for what good things have happened in our life, we would be foolish to not identify in our life what God is blessing. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So if you are in this room and you've been married for 40 years, right? You and your spouse, you've been together for 40 years. And if a young couple walks up to you and they say, hey, tell us how to have a successful marriage. And your response is, well, just God's good. God's good. We love God. God loves us. God's good. Okay, I appreciate that. I'm glad that you love God and that God loves you. What did you do to be married for 40 years, right? If you walk up to a business person and you say, hey, your, your business is really, really successful. Why is it successful? Man, God's good. Okay, I appreciate that, right? But what have you done to grow this business? Like when churches will get a hold of us, and I'm not saying this boastfully, we went from three people to almost 6,000 in about 12 years, and so churches from all over the country would say, what are you doing? Now, I could say, well, you know, just, just I, I love God, God loves us, it's, it's just, we're just blessed. You know what that's saying inadvertently? That God loves me more than you. Because I'm sure those pastors also love God, right? And I'm sure God also wants to do something miraculous with their churches. So what we need to do, listen, those of us in this room, if we are blessed, yes, we give all the credit to God, but we need to identify what are we doing that God is blessing. And not only do that more, teach other people to do it. My buddy Les that comes to church here, we had lunch the other day and Les is an avid Bible reader. He, he's made it a big thing. He's, he's a stickler about it. He goes, everyone should read some Bible every single day. It's just something he's very, very passionate about. He's been married for a long time. He's a successful businessman. He, he's in a great small group. A lot of good things happen in Les's life. And if you were to ask him, why are you so blessed? Well, yeah, God, you know, God and I have a good relationship, but I read my Bible and I apply this every day and God is blessing that. So like when people call me and say, well, well why is the church growing so fast? We teach through the Bible. We give 25% of our money to nonprofits and, and to benevolence. We start churches. We support churches in places where there aren't many churches. We do all these things, and God blesses that. So here's the thing. If we will do what this book says, God blesses our obedience. So yes, God loves us. Everything goes back to God, but God tells us to do certain things, and when we follow that, God blesses us more, right? Identify it. Teach other people to do it. Okay, a couple of points that I wanna go back and hit. The first one is this. If you are holding your breath until Christianity becomes a popular thing to do in the United States, you're going to die of suffocation. It's never going to be the norm. It's never going to be the driver of culture. We have to understand that Jesus and the word of God will always be not only countercultural. listen, because I hear people say all the time, I just don't wanna offend anyone. 
Jesus was exceptionally offensive. Our goal is not to offend. And I'll get to that here in a second. But whenever I hear people say, man, Jesus united people, you have not read your Bible. Jesus even said, I came to bring a sword to divide what is right and what is wrong. And Jesus said, that sword is going to be so divisive that it will even separate families. It will separate parents from children. It will divide. Right and wrong always divides. And we have to know that the word of God and Jesus will always be offensive to the world. Why? The source of the offense is that the Bible commands us, listen, the Bible commands us to submit to someone else's way besides ours. Despite our feelings, despite our intellect, despite what we want to do. So this book, I'm gonna tell you, will contradict how you feel at times. It will tell you to do things that you're not always comfortable with. It is God's way. He is the creator. We are the creation. It is audacious to think that we can do it the way we want to do it. Now, that's not because God is tyrannical. It's not because God hates you. It's because God loves you. And because he's the creator, sees all things, knows all things, he knows that if we do it the way we want to do it, it's going to end up in destruction. So in his love, he says, here is a roadmap to get to this place. And we can be so foolish to say, how dare you? How dare you tell me how to get to that place? The word of God, Jesus, will always be offensive because Jesus tells you to submit to him. That's why. Jesus was so offensive that he even said, there is no other way, right? The only way to God the Father is through me. Jesus said that. Jesus even said, if you're not for me, you are against me. That is a very dividing statement, right? There's two sides. Jesus very much laid that down. The other thing we have to talk about is this. Anyone who is willing to see the truth, anyone who is willing to look, anyone who is seeking truth, it doesn't take much to see that the wisdom of the world is not working. It is not working. If you ever read the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, right? Those are the easiest chapters of Revelation to read. Chapters two and three are almost completely in red letters, which means Jesus said it. As Jesus is speaking to the church, he says over and over again to the seven churches, he says, for those who have ears, listen. That doesn't mean literal physical ears. Everyone who got the letter had physical ears. What he meant is there are some of you who want to know the truth and there are some of you who refuse to hear the truth. For those of us that want to see the truth, it is not hard to see that the way of the world is not working. In contrast to that, God's wisdom that is given to us through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, and it is encouraged by conviction. We talked about this last week, right? That it is encouraged by conviction. The word of God is remarkably logical. It makes tons of sense. If you read the New Testament, the teachings of the New Testament are 100% reasonable, logical, and very, very loving, Right? The direct commands of Jesus, especially in like the Sermon of the Mount. And if you go on a little bit later, his different parables, extremely reasonable, extremely logical. Even the teachings that we're gonna go through in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, extremely logical, extremely reasonable. And they're extremely loving. And they work, they work, they work, they work. 
but we have to apply those things to our life. The Bible works if we will apply it to our lives. We also talked about how God uses people that by the world standards were not successful all the time. Now listen, we have to define success in biblical terms. That does not mean there is anything wrong with being wealthy. In American culture, we have created this thing to where if someone has something that we don't, we hate them. That's actually a violation of one of the 10 commandments to covet your neighbor's things, right? It's a sin to hate people because they're more successful than you or to want to take their stuff because you're jealous. That is a sin defined in the book of Exodus in chapter 20 if you wanna go back and read it. But we have made a culture to where to have success is almost terrible, right? It almost makes us a bad person. There's nothing wrong with affluence. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of money in your, in your bank account. There's nothing wrong with influence. There's nothing wrong with being a politician, theoretically speaking. There's nothing wrong with influence and, and having people under you. There's nothing wrong with achievement. There's nothing wrong with a PhD or a master's degree or any of that. But we have to know as Christians, all of those things are secondary to our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. True success is a strong relationship with Jesus and a strong relationship with other people. That's where success starts. Seek first the kingdom of God. That is success. We must also remember that whatever success we have in our life, whether that be leading a church or being a great mom or being a great employee or starting a business or being talented in different ways, all of that comes by God's grace and by God's provision. It all goes back to him. But here's the thing. Yes, all of our blessings come from God. If you take anything from my lesson today, I hope you take this. We would be very wise to identify in our life what God is blessing. If you pray every single day and you just, wow, man, I'm really blessed. Okay, what is God blessing? God is blessing that prayer. So do that more and teach other people to do it. Man, I'm a really, really great mom. What is God blessing? I read my Bible to my children. I pray with them every night. I raise them in the ways that the Bible tells me. God is blessing those things. Do that more and communicate that to others to do that as well, right? So don't just say, God's good. Yes, I know, God's good. What are we doing that God thinks is good, that God is blessing? Do that more, communicate it. And if we will make a relationship with Jesus a priority, this is so important. If we will read the word of God and if we will apply the word of God to our lives, listen, we don't have to live in fear of what people think of us. We don't have to live lives addicted to affirmation. We don't have to live in insecurity. And guys, listen, I'm gonna be very, very vulnerable with all of you this morning. I can struggle with this big time. It manifests itself maybe in different ways than it may manifest in your life. But because I don't have a father in my life, I haven't for a long time, because of other insecurities from things that happened when I grew up, I can very easily forget who I am. I can very easily try to impress people or try to buck up to people when they say stuff or I can easily let pride creep in birthed out of insecurity. I can do that. And I can also lose confidence very, very easily. That's why I have to walk really, really close with Jesus. And if we will walk close with Jesus, pray, read the word of God, do what it tells us, we can live in the security. Listen to me, I'm not trying to sound cheesy. 
We can live in the security that I don't have to impress you because God sees what I'm doing. God knows every hair on my head. God desires to be with me. I don't have to impress any of you because I understand that I'm a son of the king of the universe, that he loves me, that he has good plans and desires and hopes for me. Young ladies, this is why you don't have to just give yourself to any man that gives you attention. Don't do that, don't degrade yourself. Don't give in to that insecurity because you can get that affirmation from your father until the right man comes around or if the right man never comes around. That we can have that confidence in who we are that we can stand up a little bit straighter because you and I were made in the image of God. We weren't made in the image of our checkbooks. We were not made in the image of the car we drive. We were not made in the image of what culture says is beautiful. That if we have a relationship with Jesus, we belong to the king. And there is security in that. There is confidence in that. Hey, listen, I'll be the first to tell you it's not always easy to walk in that. It's not. If we're just being real humans in here today. But God has a desire for you to find comfort, contentment, peace, security, confidence, not in you, because you're gonna mess up. But if his spirit is in us, we have that confidence. We have that security of him being with us, okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you are in this room, and if you are maybe not a believer, or maybe you're a new believer and you just got a lot of questions, we're, we're all about questions, we like questions. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Carl is up here at the corner of the stage. He helps do all of our small groups here at the church and he'd love to talk with you if you need to talk to someone, okay? You can ask him anything you want. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, absolutely anything, for you, for someone that you love, for a job situation or a health situation, it doesn't matter. Come up here and let someone pray with you, okay? Listen, some of you may struggle like I do with this insecurity thing, and maybe you just need someone to place an arm on your shoulder or hold your hand and, and pray with you about that. The last thing is, we have communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, there's the bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus. If you have repented of your sins, if you've given your life to Jesus, you're welcome to go take that. Now, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want you to think about something today when you take communion. If you've ever wondered if you're valuable, if you've ever wondered if you're worth it, if you've ever felt insecure, if you've ever lacked confidence, listen, I'm not try again, I'm not trying to be cheesy. This is the good news, this is truth. God sent his only son to die for you not a vague humanity. God died for everyone, but he died for individuals. The book of Romans says that while you were at your worst, while you were still a sinner, Jesus Christ came and died for you. He knows everything bad you've done, but he also knows your potential. He knows what you can be. He has good plans for you, and that is proven to us by the fact that Jesus died on the cross. You are valuable. You can be confident in him. You can find security in him if you'll just walk with him. Let him walk with you. 
Father, Lord, I love you, God. I love this church so much, God. This is, this is, this is my home away from home, God. These are, these, these are my family, Lord. God, I pray, Lord, for any of us in this room that struggle, Lord, with confidence or security, Father, that you would give us that peace, Lord, that you would, you would reassure us who we are, God, that your blood bought us. We've been redeemed by what you've done for us. You love us. Remind us of that today, God. Lord, for anyone in this room that's struggling, Lord, I pray that you just give them peace. Help them, God. Walk with them. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. We give the rest of this day to you, God, and our whole lives, Lord. Keep my friends safe until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.